Number six this morning. And the passage that we're going to be looking at actually begins with verse 37. It ends with verse 49. But I'm going to begin this morning by starting with verse 49, and then I'll work my way back through the rest of the passage. So to begin with, let's just take a look at this one verse. Luke chapter 6, verse 49, which reads... And these are the words of Jesus. But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the river burst against it, immediately it fell and great was the ruin of that house. One of the most vicious Critics of the Christian faith was a German philosopher by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche, who lived in the 19th century, and he popularized the phrase, God is dead. And he was the son of a Lutheran pastor. And there was a time when he had intentions of becoming a pastor himself, but It didn't come to pass. And one of the reasons he was so dissatisfied with the Christian faith is because he was convinced that the New Testament emphasized a theology of the cross and emphasized self-denial to such a great extent that what it amounted to was a complete rejection of of our life in this world, a complete and total rejection, that we were just prisoners waiting to be set free at death and that we were to be miserable in this life so that we might experience glory in the vision of God at the resurrection of the dead. And... Certainly, there are passages in Scripture in which we are admonished to take up our cross and follow Jesus. But when we look at the word world, as it's used in Holy Writ, we need to be careful because it's used in two very different ways. If by world what we mean is the world that God created and us as part of that creation, the world that God declared to be very good, then what we are talking about is a gift that God has given us, a gift that we were meant to be stewards of. And this is the meaning of the world in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave us his son, that he might redeem it and us. When we talk about rejecting the world, what we're referring to is rejecting the world insofar as it is in rebellion against God's will. We are talking about impurity. We're talking about pride. We're talking about the worship of money. We're talking about selfishness, and that's where the cross comes in. When it comes to that world, the attitude of the godless, we are to reject it 
utterly and completely and make no compromise with it. That's where the cross comes into our life. That's where self-denial comes into our life. But there is nothing in the New Testament that suggests we are to make ourselves miserable in this life. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said, I have come that you might have abundant life. Of course, recognizing that the abundant life doesn't consist in what we possess, but the abundant life is the life that continually rejoices in God, our creator, our father, our redeemer. That's the abundant life that he's come to give us. And when we're looking at this passage in Luke chapter 6, there's a parallel in the Old Testament. In that Testament, we see Moses coming down from Mount Sinai, and he's issuing to the people of Israel the terms of the first covenant. And he's saying to them, this is what it means for you to live as God's people in this world. This is what it means for you to live as God's people. Now, in Luke, this is the Sermon on the Mount. And now Jesus is on the mountain, and he is issuing the terms of the new covenant. He's ushering in the new birth. And he's saying, now, for people of faith, because inclusion in God's people was once based on ethnicity, it is no longer. It is now based on faith in Jesus Christ. And he said, this is how we are to live in this world. These are instructions for our life in this world. And we ask the question, well, if the Apostle Paul was correct in saying that our salvation is purely a gift of God's grace, then why does this matter? It matters for this reason. The one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the river burst against it, immediately it fell, and great was the ruin of that house. He's not talking about storms that we're going to face after death. He's talking about the troubles that we will face in this world. And he says, if you hear my words but do not act on them, you are building your life in this world on a foundation of sand. And it's only a matter of time. Before it collapses. So how are we to live in this world? Well, Pastor Bill has been talking to us about this over the past two weeks. He talked about how we are supposed to be humble. Supposed to be poor in spirit. He talked about how we are supposed to love our enemies last week. And this week, Jesus tells us, beginning with verse 37. Do not judge... And you will not be judged. Do not condemn. And you will not be condemned. Now, it's interesting that in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the same in Matthew. In both cases, shortly after Jesus speaks these words, he adds to them, verse 43, No good tree bears bad fruit 
nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. In other words, you can judge a tree by its fruit. Judge not, you can judge a tree by its fruit. And in Matthew's gospel, he goes on to make the connection with false prophets. And he tells the people, this is how you can discern who a false prophet is. If he prophesies in God's name, says, I have heard from God, and that prophecy is unfulfilled, then you can come to the conclusion that man or that woman has not heard from God. You can judge based on results. And also in Matthew's gospel, chapter 18, we see Jesus giving us instructions about reconciliation. And he says, look, if your brother or sister sin against you, you need to go to them, explain how you believe that you've been wronged, and try to come to a reconciliation between you and the person who you believe has wronged you. Now, of course, that can't happen unless I actually believe I've been wronged. If I don't think you've sinned against me, I can't come to you and say you've sinned against me. There is a judgment involved in that. And I want to make this clear because I think that this is one of the sayings of Jesus that if it's pushed to logical extremes leads to absurdities. As a pastor who's worked with youth, I have had to do things like confiscate cigarettes on youth retreats. I've had to tell my students, no, what Christianity teaches is that sex outside of marriage is wrong. And so if you think it's not wrong, you need to call your new religion by a new name. Because the Christian faith for over 2,000 years has stated very clearly, sex outside of marriage is wrong. I've had to tell them not to take advantage of people. And it would be very easy for someone to say, you can't do that because Jesus said, don't judge. We as preachers cannot admonish the people of God because Jesus said, don't judge. We can judge by results and we do judge by results but the problem is for those of you who may have your defenses up right now and think pastor jesus said judge not and you're saying he taught exactly the opposite the problem is we are not content to leave it at that and there's two big mistakes i think we make along these lines one of them i mentioned last time i preached over winter break and I quoted Richard Hooker, and I want to reiterate what I said back then. We cannot judge the intentions and motivations of another person's heart. We cannot do this because we simply do not know. Now, we'd like to think that we know the intentions and thoughts of other people's hearts, but we don't, God alone does. And therefore, it is foolishness for us to judge along these lines. And there's another principle at work here that I think very few people ever really become fully aware of. And that is this. Once you are convinced in your mind, once you are convinced that someone's motivations are impure, once you are convinced they have bad intentions Anything they do 
will only serve to justify your suspicions, no matter what they do, no matter what. Once you're convinced that the government is out to get you, everything the government does will just serve as evidence for the theory you've already adopted. And I don't know how many of you are conspiracy theorists this morning, but I want to tell you in love that you irritate me for this reason. Because, of course, you perceive everything as the government's against me. You know, if I was convinced that one of you was a rotten person, say, we're leaving church and you open the door for me, you would think, oh, well, that will change my mind, right? No, it won't. I'll just think, what a show off. He's just trying to be nice. He's just trying to play Christian. We can rewind the tape. Suppose you don't open the door for me. How rude. How inconsiderate. This person is so mean. I, I knew it. I knew it all along. I knew it before it even happened. And we don't understand how petty and childish we are along these lines because we're doing something that we can't do. We can't judge intentions. We cannot judge motivations. And we shouldn't. Another mistake that we make is we end up judging people and defining them by their faults. We write people off and we define them. We characterize them by what they've done wrong. And let me give you a good example of this from Scripture. I'm going to jump ahead to Luke chapter 19. Knowing that we're going to get there eventually, but by that time this sermon will be long since forgotten, so I don't think I'm dangerous of cannibalizing anyone's message. I want to read the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. It's short, only 10 verses, beginning with verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He is gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. Now, I think that the passage strongly implies, though it doesn't explicitly say this, Zacchaeus has been guilty of fraud in the past. At least the vow he makes to Jesus would be very strange if he knew that he had never cheated anyone. And so he's made mistakes, and not only that, he's a tax collector, which means he's in league with the Roman government, the oppressor of the people of Israel. He's a sinner, and all are grumbling, including the disciples, I believe, at the fact that Jesus is going to be the guest of this man 
because they have defined him. They have defined him as sinner. They have defined him by his mistakes and his faults. And that's who he is. And that's all he'll ever be. That's you. Tax collector, sinner. Jesus looks at the same person, same faults, same past, and he sees lost sheep. And he says, and I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. We can take Peter as an example. Here's another example. Poor Peter gets bashed all the time. But think about it this way. If we were going to start a company or if you were planning on starting an organization and you were trying to pick the people that would be the face of that organization, the representatives of that organization to the world. And right before you're getting ready to launch through no fault of your own, you find yourself in a really tight spot where you need help. And one of these people you're considering denies you and abandons you after swearing the exact opposite. Now, I think I'm indicting myself along with everyone else here this morning when I say we would not have anything to do with that person. There is no way he would get the job. There is no way we'd say, I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you a pillar of my organization. But that's exactly what Jesus did. He did not define Peter by his sins. He did not define Peter by his mistakes. He restored Peter and he made Peter a pillar of his church. It's a concept which is very easy to grasp in theory, impossible without God to put into practice. One of my oldest friends right now has been struggling for the past 10 years. And over the past 10 years, I can count on one hand the number of rational decisions that he's made. The reason that he's in the position that he's in is not a mystery to me. And it's so easy when someone for so long, it's just boom, boom, one mistake after another. It's so easy to write a person off, isn't it? And say, that's all you are. But I'll tell you one person who hasn't written him off. His mother, all the time, speaking encouragement to him, all the time, reminding him, I love you. And uh, thank God for a mother's heart, because it reveals to us the nature of God's heart. If I'm convinced of anything, I'm convinced that Jesus did not suffer and die on the cross so that we could look at other people and write them off as being branches that are doomed to wither and die off the tree of life. There is no love in that. There is no love. There is no hope. If we're called to love people, if we're called to love our enemies, that is one of the hopes we must have for other people, that God can turn anyone around anyone and that the son of man is at work in the world right now 
seeking and trying to save the lost. Let's work with him, not against him. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. And then Jesus adds to this another angle that we need to look at, beginning with verse 39. He also told them a parable. Can a blind person guide a blind person? Will not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully qualified will be like the teacher. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, friend, let me take out the speck in your eye when you yourself do not see the log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Now, again, we don't want to push the passage to illogical extremes. Obviously, we're called to preach the good news. We're called to make disciples. We're called to point out to our brother and sister when they have sinned against us. But we're not called on to take on a savior complex. This idea that I can fix you. I can do this. I'm good at it because I practice a lot. And I see you've got a little speck in your eye and I will take it out for you. I will be your fixer. And what Jesus is saying is the next time that attitude overwhelms us and we want to be a fixer, the best thing to do is go immediately to the mirror and we will find plenty to keep us occupied. We will find plenty to work on. He says it's just foolishness. He is the Savior, not us. Jesus goes on to say, I didn't read this portion of verse 37. Again, very important. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back in. I think in this passage here, seeing how it follows immediately after he says forgive, when he's talking about giving, he's talking about giving mercy. He's talking about giving the benefit of the doubt. Now, along these lines, I've noticed that there are Christians who are coming to the conclusion that the difference between gospel and legalism is something like this. Gospel is you follow Jesus because you want to. Legalism is following Jesus because you have to. I mean, that's it in a very crude nutshell. But you get the general idea. Now, that's good so far as it goes, but in order for it to really help us, we need to also realize that there is a difference between the goal and the journey towards the goal. Yes, that's the goal 
for me to be in the place to where I follow Jesus because I want to. Am I there yet? No. And I can look at people like Stephen, the first martyr, who as he was being stoned to death, prayed, God forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now that is the goal, to be that mature, to forgive like that. And that's not just some piece of Christian idealism. Stephen was not Jesus, but he prayed that prayer and he meant it. But I might not be there. And if I'm not, I've got to be honest with myself. And that's why I appreciated Joel's sermon a couple weeks ago when he was talking about forgiveness. And he was talking about how he got to the point to where he just had to say to God, God, I cannot forgive this person. That is such a beautiful prayer. That is such a beautiful place to be when we acknowledge our weakness, when we acknowledge our need for God's grace, when we acknowledge that we are completely dependent upon Him. And to say, God, I cannot. You must change my heart. And of course, we need to recognize our need for the goal. We need to get there. I must get to the place where I have forgiven completely and fully and utterly. I must get there. That is the goal. That is my resolve. But until I'm there, I'm going to rely on His grace. And I'm going to say, God, please change my heart. When I feel the feelings of bitterness and anger and resentment well up in me that I thought I had left months ago, once again, I'm going to pray, God, I haven't got there yet. I need your help. Change my heart. Trusting that he who begins a good work in you will bring it to completion and get you to that place of total forgiveness. That's faith. That's faith in God. And we need to be real sensitive, by the way, to other Christians who are struggling with forgiveness. We need to be compassionate. And it's so easy to moralize on people in that position and say, you know, you don't forgive. Just not taking any notice of how badly someone's been hurt or how badly someone's been abused. And obviously, there comes a time if someone continues with an unrepentant, obstinate heart where we may have to say, you know what? The time has come for you to get right with God. The time has come for you to forgive. But we need to be wary of picking specks out of people's eyes. We need to understand compassion and to be in prayer, of course, for those who are struggling with forgiveness. And one more thing along these lines, and I'm almost done. The flip side of this is when someone comes to us and apologizes and says, I was wrong, forgive me. That is not the time to say something galactically stupid like, I'm glad you could admit that you're wrong. Or, I am so ashamed of you. Or, why did it take you so long to come to your senses? Is that how God forgives us? No. When we read the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, the father embraces his sinful son before the sinful son can even confess his sins. That's what God is like. And some people might not be able to believe that because we're not like that, but that's what God is like. And that's how we need to be. Once again, that's the goal. 
to imitate God, our Father in heaven. Why? Why do we need to do this? Because Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. That one is like a man building a house who dug deeply and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood arose, the river burst out against that house but could not shake it because it had been well built. That's why. That's why we love our enemies. That's why we don't judge. That's why we forgive. Because we want to build our house on the rock of the teaching of Jesus Christ. So that when troubles come, our house will stand. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you for the beautiful day that you've given us. And we ask that we would be aware of how you're working in our hearts and lives. And how you're working in the hearts and lives of other people. We pray that you would give us the heart of Christ and give us the mind of Christ that we might faithfully represent you to the world for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.